stick. <laughs> Let's take a few moments for prayer. We, we come together today to look into Revelation 13. We're at the first verse in Revelation 13. And as we have been studying, we have uh, mentioned the first session, a lot of us were, were wanting to find out more about how God's Word fits together. That's part of what brought us all together to begin with. We see the Bible, we read the Bible. The Bible is written in a in a beautiful way. It's written in a sequence. It's got a format to it. But it also touches on many different topics throughout the scripture and different parts of the scripture. Prophecy is one of those one of those major topics. And in order to understand it, we have to try and put it together. To do that, we take passages from all over the Bible that deals with a particular topic, and we try to see how they fit, what sequence of events they fit into, and see what, uh, what God has shown us in his overall plan of the ages. So it's important that we... Uh, first of all, call on the Holy Spirit because he is the one that the Lord said would lead us into all truth and show us things to come. So we need to to call on him. We need to present ourselves before the throne of grace. We need to ask for understanding. You know, the Lord wants you to understand. He says, seek me and you'll find me. It's a promise, but that's a seeking that we have to do. Otherwise, he's under no obligation. But if you want to know and you really want to know, then he will show it to you. He will show you how it fits together. So, before we begin, it's important that we prepare ourselves spiritually to be able to try and understand this portion of the Scripture and where it fits in the scheme of history. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your blessings. Thank you for your test. Thank you for all that you have said in front of us. Thank you most of all for our Lord Jesus Christ. This, this last week, people celebrated the entry into the world of our Lord Jesus Christ. He came in perfectly and lived a perfect life so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He died for our sins on the cross because he was worthy. He alone was worthy to be able to do that. Father, we thank you for him. We thank you for the revelation of him. We thank you for this book and your amazing word. And we thank you for the 65 books in front of it. And Father, as we come together today just to try and glean and understand a little portion of it, I pray the Holy Spirit would be our real teacher so that we might indeed learn more about our Lord Jesus Christ and your plan of the ages. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been... uh, Let's see, let me go this way. No sense in adding steps to this. But where are we today? What are are we looking at? And um, we have seen in the book of Revelation, the first chapter introduces the Lord himself walking in the middle of the lampstand. So it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is his revelation of himself. It's also a revelation about him. So the revelation of Jesus Christ is he is the subject and he is the object both of this revelation. Revelation is a word that means to take a veil off of something as a bride would do whenever the uh, wedding is pronounced completed. That veil is lifted. That is what this is about. We see now in a mirror dimly but then face to face. So this is an un 
unveiling. It is giving us a better picture of the groom himself and what this relationship is all about. Now that's chapter 1. Chapter 2 and 3 is the letters to the seven churches. They are prophetic because the whole book's prophetic. Revelation 1, 3, the words of the book of this prophecy. It is one prophecy that deals with Jesus Christ himself. We are currently in this last generation, is what it looks like, the last era of the church age, which is a lukewarm era. People pay a lot of lip service to, to God, but uh, their heart is far away from him. Sounds like the first advent, doesn't it? You think maybe it's kind of bringing everything back into place like the first advent, now the second advent. The attitudes are the same. It's just the events that culminated are going to be are going to be different. Chapter 4, verse 1, John looked, behold, a door standing open in heaven. And it's a picture of the rapture because after the church is over is the rapture of the church and we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air and thus to always be with the Lord we go to his father's house that's a picture in chapter 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation of the events right after the rapture of the church now one of those events was there was a search there was a big search on looking for someone worthy to open the seals of the book because the seals are about judgment and as Brian brought out today, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What is this about? This is about the holiness of God, isn't it? We saw in the first, the first session, chapter 1, verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians, we are not destined for wrath. He's going to deliver us from the wrath which is to come. Why is God's wrath poured out? It's certainly not because everybody's loving one another. Is it? Can you see God pouring out his wrath on a world that loved one another and got along with each other and treated each other fairly and honestly and all this? No, this is a culmination of all the unrepentant sins where God lets them build up. He's done it multiple times throughout history. Prior to the flood, what happened? They were inventors of evil. All their thoughts were only evil continually. Prior to Sodom and Gomorrah, what happened? Their sins piled up and it reached up to the heaven. Sins pile up when they're left unrepentant and God judges them. Now he judges them in such a way he's still giving people a chance to believe for seven years after the rapture of the church. They still have an opportunity to get saved and spend eternity with him. And many of them will. Now as we remember chapter 6 that is about the opening of the seal judgments. Those are judgments that will go on throughout the tribulation and continue to intensify much like the beginning of birth pangs with the birth of a child. They keep getting more and more and more intense and they keep getting closer together. Now in typical Hebrew fashion, things are revealed in topics. So you have to take the topic and see where the topic fits on the timeline. And as you pay attention to the little markers that are placed there, you figure out where they go on the timeline. Because that's, that's what they've done. We're going to see another one here today. We're going to see how long the, the Antichrist gets to rule. It's one of the things that comes out in this, in this chapter. How long is his reign length for and, and what, what is going on. In chapter 7, we saw the 144,000 male, virgin, Jews. They will be sent out into all different parts of the world as part of the evangelistic team is what, what I believe. They are all sealed. They are all protected. 
and at the second advent they are going to all gather with the Lamb on Mount Zion. Now that is a supernatural hand involved. Anytime you have 144,000 people, I just pick it, just chunk off Bethany here. Chunk off Bethany here. I don't know what the population is. Probably 30,000, 25, Yukon. I've lost track of how many. Maybe 144,000 is the western edge of Oklahoma City. Can you imagine going for seven years? And in that seven years, you got stars falling out of heaven, you got famines, you got earthquakes, you got all those said nobody dying. Would you not say that's a divine hand? How about 144,000 scattered out through all the earth, and they're going through much the same battles as normal humanity is concerning earthquakes, meteor showers, all those other things. God says, I put my seal on their foreheads. He's going to protect them. And they're going to be with him at the end. Now to me, that is a miracle all to itself. And it is once again God saying, you can try all the stuff you want to try, but when I put my stamp of approval on it, you can't touch it. Now that's good. Because aren't we sealed? Two. So he can't, this devil can, can afflict us like Job, but he can't touch us in the real areas. We see the 144,000 in chapter 7. Chapter 8 and 9 moves to the topic of the trumpet judgments. And we start finding about other judgments that happen near the middle point of the tribulation. Chapter 10, Israel comes into play. Gabriel takes his uh, stand, right foot in the Mediterranean, left foot on the land, facing south. We've got to put a lot of passages together to see how that fits. But Gabriel takes his stand to protect Israel from the final onslaught of the king of the north that has gone down, defeated the king of the south, and it turns back around to uh, try and wipe the Jews totally off the map altogether and Gabriel stops them. He's the guardian angel over Israel and he's the one that stops them. Chapter 10. Chapter 11 introduces two people. Moses and Elijah. My two witnesses. I think the two witnesses to the transfiguration of Christ. Moses and Elijah. Picture of the law and the prophets. They're out in the desert for 1260 days is what it tells us. See, see these little timelines they put in? 1260 days, 42 months, time, times, and half a time. These are markers used to tell us what happens in the middle of the trip and what happens near the end of the trip. They're little time tags that chronology freaks like me like to know where they are. I want to know when things fit. So here is Revelation chapter 11. Chapter 12, this is the old dragon getting thrown out of heaven. That's all about the angelic conflict. And chapter 13, he's giving us a new topic that we ha he hasn't talked about before. And that is the two bad guys. That's the, that's the sign out there. What did you say? The two bad girls showed up this morning or something like that. But <laughs> the two bad guys out there on the sign. And we go, well, there are two bad guys. And, of course, some would say it's Trump and Pence. Others would say it's Pelosi and Schumer. And those aren't the two bad guys that we're looking at here. These are different. They're for a specific time frame. And they are uh, the 
beast out of the sea, that's the Antichrist, and the beast out of the land is the false prophet. So we're going to get some more details of these people, fitting them into the timeline and getting some more information about how they operate, what they are doing, what the, what is their objective while they are here. So that's Revelation 13.1, and that's where we start this morning. The book of Revelation is, first of all, we're in the section dealing with angelic conflict. That's in chapter 12 through 14. How do we know that? Because I've read ahead. Chapter 14 has got more about angels in it. It's got more about reaping, the reaping of the sickle into the earth, the sickle over the earth. It's got multiple days. 12 through 14 is about the angelic conflict going on behind the scenes, only not quite so much in the tribulation. It's really what is going on whenever the whenever everybody is fighting with each other and killing each other and all that. The angelic conflict. The two beasts are chapter 13 and the beast from the sea is the first 10 verses of that. Now in chapter 13, we're reminded that there were six different personalities introduced in chapter 12. One was the woman. We know the woman is Israel. The second was the dragon. We know that's the devil, the serpent of old, known by many different names. One was the male child. That was Jesus Christ that the dragon sought to devour. Then we have angels, angelic beings. Saved angels is the way I see them. We see Satan's angels as well. Because here is Michael and his angels fighting with the devil's angels. So we see the conflict spilling over into uh, this world as we know it. And then we see the remnant, those who are left, the Jews who are left. The devil is going after them with everything he's got. He tries to drown them all, and it doesn't work. Two more personalities are present in this chapter, the beast out of the sea and out of the land. And this deals with the future, future from us of the angelic conflict. Now, in verse 1, <clears throat> this is the arrival of the beast from the sea. Now these are, I think you only have three verses on there. We'll be lucky to get through these, but I'm going to try to today. <clears throat> it says, and he. Now when you're studying the Bible, any part of the Bible, and you see a pronoun, he, she, it, we, you, they, you have to identify who that goes with. And there's what's called the rule of the immediate antecedent, where you have a name that is used like like the dragon out of verse 17. And when it says, and he, the immediate antecedent is the dragon. So it's talking there about the dragon. This is one of the most basic principles of interpretation. And I've heard people around the world say when they first understood that, it opened the Bible up to them in ways they never imagined. Because they were able to, to continue with a contextual flow of what it was saying. And he stood on the sand. Sand is the word amas. It is the sand like of a seashore. But uh, as in other places it's used, Matthew 7, 26, Romans 9, 27, Hebrews 11, 12, when you see sand, it pictures a vast, insecure foundation because it does shift. That's what sand is a picture of, a vast, insecure foundation the sand of the seashore now in the Greek text 
This phrase is actually verse 18 in chapter 12. That's where it's normally put. It's This one's drug over into this first part of chapter 13. Uh, <clears throat> now, of the seashore. The beast is standing there, we're going to learn, because he's risen out of it and from it. And it says, And I saw a beast, a therion is the word, a wild animal, 46 times it's used, 38 times in the book of Revelation. So here's one of the usages in Revelation. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Now, in, here's where you got, you got to keep reading. When you first read the book of Revelation, don't do like a lot of people do. They read it and then they go, I can't understand this and close it and that's goodbye. You have to keep reading. If we, Because more information about this beast is going to be given in chapter 17. And in 17.15 we have a picture that the word sea is used for as a symbol for peoples, nations, and languages. So here is a vast area we know is a sea. And out of the sea is a picture primarily of someone coming up out of the Gentile nations. Now, many people think that the Antichrist is a Jew. The false prophet is a Jew. But that's not the picture we get of the Antichrist. The Antichrist is a Gentile. You say, will Jews ever worship a Gentile? Or accept a Gentile as a king? There's been a couple of them in their history that they have openly decided to follow. And people in unbelief will follow anything if the right thing is put in front of them. So that's not really an argument to say, well, he's a Gentile, couldn't possibly be. This is what he's coming up out of the sea of nations. This is a Gentile rising up. And he says, having ten horns. This is going to be talked about again in chapter 17 and verse 12. Ten horns. It's also talked about in Daniel 7, 7. So when we get into chapter 13, guess what? We're going to drag a lot of the book of Daniel into it. I remember as a little kid, talking, people talking about Revelation. And, you know, all the great scholars said, well, you can't possibly understand the book of Revelation unless you understand the book of Daniel. That's the only phrase, some of the few phrases I remember from my childhood. And I'm going, well, that's cool. You have to understand Daniel in order to understand Revelation. And I read Daniel, I went, I don't understand a word about that <laughs> either. So there wasn't a whole lot of help when I was 10 years old. So... Anyway, it says, having ten horns and seven heads. Again, the beast of Revelation 17. And on his horns were ten diadems. Now, it's similar to, to what we saw about the ten horns and diadems in chapter 12, verse 3, where there were diadems on his seven heads. Now, the diadem is a ruler's turban. It is a picture of a king. It is one of the kings that that is, uh, was actually first adopted by Diocletian, the Roman king, where he wore it all the time. But he took that, and Alexander the Great was the first one to actually wear a turban of this nature, often a blue type of turban, that was worn to show the rulership. He was the first one that they've been able to find that, that uh, wore this thing. On his horns, ten horns, see... Ten diadems, one on each horn. And on his heads were blasphemous names. Now, Satan is seen standing on the seashore. 
looking out to sea and he watches the emergence of a political base. Now, how do we know that? In part because I've already read ahead. Okay? We know that a lot from chapter 17. We know that, yea, there are seven kings, five have fallen, one is, one is yet to come, and he will establish himself an eighth kingdom. I'm sure you've read that before and went, what is that all about? Well, this is part of the groundwork to put together that piece of the puzzle that fits, fits into it. The seven heads refer to seven major anti-Jewish empires that are found in history. It'll be clear in chapter 17, where it says, Five have fallen, one is, and one is yet to come. And yea, they are seven kings. There are seven specific kings in view uh, during that prophecy of chapter 17. But who are these empires? This has been recognized for hundreds of years by people who study prophecy. You have Egypt. Goes all the way back to Egypt becoming anti-Semitic when the Jews were located there in Egypt. Egypt who supplanted them? Assyria. Egypt, Assyria, supplanted by who? Babylon. Babylon was also an oppressor of Israel. They took the Jews into captivity. Assyria defeated the northern kingdom, scattered them in 721 B.C., Southern kingdom was Babylon, took them into captivity, 586 to 516 B.C. Who supplanted the Babylonians, the Persians? That's the writing on the wall that was taking place. And these are documented events in history, well documented, even outside of the Bible. Then we have Greece, led by Alexander the Great. Who defeated the Persians? The Greeks did. Who defeated the Greeks? The Romans did. So we have Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. Five. Five have fallen. One is Rome. Okay? That's chapter 17, giving you four armed with the interpretation. One is yet to come. So there's one future to John. Because John's writing in 96 AD. So these other five are fallen. One is Rome, one is yet to come, which is seen as the revived Roman Empire. That's how prophecy people talk about it frequently, and that's what they're, they're talking about. The ten horns are ten kings who will rule with the Antichrist in a revival of the Roman Empire. Now, some people try to put the United States as part of the revived Roman Empire, but part of the problem is geography. You had a problem with geography when we're separated by two oceans any direction you go. That's there because the Roman Empire never heard about North and South American continents at all. They weren't even sure there was anything there. They had some sea trade, but not to the not not that far around the around the globe. It's similar to the ten toes of Daniel two, verse forty to forty five, which referred to an extension of Rome from Daniel's perspective. The seven heads are kings and kingdoms that they led. Now, the verses you see quoted are from primarily Revelation 17. And I'm not going to go exegete all of Revelation 17 and bring it back here. This is just a teaser. It's a warm-up, divinely inspired, that says keep reading. That's what it's for. So if you're teased by it, Keep reading, and we'll have more explanation. 
The ten horns are on the seventh head. We learn that from, again, chapter 17. The shift in the diadems from the heads to the hordes indicates that each of the horns will claim divinity. Now, as you start looking at these horns on the seventh head, it's got ten horns, and they have a, a turban, ruler's turban, whatever it is. It kind of indicates that when you get into the tribulational time span, whoever's the king of those places are basically going to claim godhood. Now, the Antichrist is going to take these ten and defeat three of them. So do you think this is a holy war or not? you got the gods fighting the gods, just like out of Greco-Roman mythology. Is exactly what you got. You have a holy war going on throughout all of the tribulation, and this is so frequently missed by the commentators. They don't talk about the holy war that is happening. They know it's a holy war between God and, and Satan. They, they recognize that. But it is a holy war all over the world. The Muslims are fighting anybody that is not Muslim. So that includes all the atheists. It includes all the polytheists. And it includes all the Jews. That's who they're fighting. Who are the polytheists fighting? Well, it's interesting that peaceful little Buddhists. Anybody got a picture of a Buddhist? And you know, and they, they just, you know, they're into it. They got their yoga thing going. They've got their astral projection going. They're going out beyond the stars. And they're just so nice and peaceful. Well, Buddha means enlightened one, and he's claiming to be enlightened one, but they're anything but. I just got a video uh, from another country of this uh, uh, hostile Buddhist monk going after a Christian missionary. And uh, they're not peaceful little people. I can tell you that from experience, and I haven't been around them that much. But they are, they're peaceful as long as you don't challenge them. Then they are anything but peaceful. And what are they trying to do? Become enlightened so they can ascend to godhood. Their blasphemous names refer to claims of divinity. On their heads were blasphemous names. How better to blaspheme the Lord God Almighty, the one and the only, than to claim you're a god and put your godly name on top of it. That is a blasphemous name. The sea is a symbol for peoples, nations, languages. Thus the Antichrist is a Gentile. He's a Gentile. If the Antichrist were a Muslim, this is an extra footnote here, he'd be killed for blasphemy when he proclaimed himself a god. The Muslims would do it. There was a thing floating around four or five years ago that, that the Antichrist was a Muslim. I heard somebody on a radio station one time driving down the road, and he says, well, everybody knows the Antichrist, the 40-year-old Muslim. And I was talking to the radio. They could not hear me through the airwaves, but I was certainly having a conversation with that, with, with, with that wrongness. I'll leave it there. It's about as wrong as you can possibly get. The Muslims fight with each other, but they all hold to Allah. And if you try to say you're equal with Allah, like the Antichrist does, taking his seat in the temple, proclaiming himself to be a god, they'll kill him. That's what, so that he is not, he is not a uh, 40-year-old Muslim that the Jews have accepted, and the Muslims have not. It's not, not going to be part of it. 
That's the simplest part of, of that. They try to use some verses that are uh, don't remotely describe what they're trying to prove. And verse 2 says, And the beast which I saw was... It's the word host used here. It means similar to in nature and action. Was like a leopard. Now the leopard is known for its speed. Okay, The beast which I saw was like, similar to a leopard. So it's telling us there's an analogy here. And his feet were like those of a bear. Now a bear has got force. Bears are absolutely stronger, stronger than we can remotely imagine. And his mouth like the mouth of a lion. A lion is pretty intimidating. And the mouth of a lion is pretty intimidating. So here we're getting kind of a picture. He says, The beast was like a leopard, feet like those of a bear, mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon... This is the dragon standing on the seashore watching this this beast come out of the sea. The beast out of the sea. And he is <clears throat> the dragon gave him, this beast, his power, his dunamis, the inherent ability, and his throne. That's his position of power. And great authority gave him a sphere. So this basically saying that the devil himself, who is the dragon, according to the last chapter, the dragon, the serpent of old, the beast, he is giving his power, sounds like an indwelling of this particular creature. When did this happen? Somewhere around the middle point. What happened? The beast started rising out of the sea, ascending to power, conquering these various nations, and at some point... The devil himself moves into him. Can he do that? Well, he did Judas, didn't he? I mean, these are things that have been done before. They're not necessarily unique, but they are definitely not not the norm. Uh, I think he, the old devil himself inhabited a snake one time back in Genesis three. So he's uh, he's been around. Who did he? Who who is the devil actually? Uh, um, may do it the old devil may be do it serpent Judas Antichrist now the symbolisms identified in Daniel 7 first 8 verses where there it refers to four major end time entities and go ahead and turn to Daniel 7 there with me if you would some commentaries it's always interesting to pick up a commentary and not that interesting, but it's it's sometimes interesting to pick it up because Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are pretty close to each other. And some people look at Daniel 7 and go, it's just a reiteration of Daniel 2. Well, but it's not. Significant differences. Daniel 7, 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed and then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night and behold the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Sound like a, maybe a beast out of the sea? And four great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another. 
The first was like a lion, had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground, made to stand on two feet like a man, and a human mind was also given to it. Now, boy, your imagination can start running kind of wild here because in the age of uh, cloning, huh? what about a clone? How can all these things happen? Could it be a clone and a human mind was given to it? Another passage talks about the breath of life being breathed into it. I mean, there, there are different things that say this, and you're going, Daniel's scratching his head, going, there's no way I can understand it. He asks for some interpretations, and he gets a no answer on it. Verse 5, Behold another beast, the second one resembling a bear. And it was raised on one side, a lopsided bear. Three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. It's been seen as the defeat of the three of the ten nations in the rise to power of the Antichrist. After this I kept looking, behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. And the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I kept looking in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful, terrifying, extremely strong, it had large iron teeth, it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. See connections? While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boast. Now as we look at the Antichrist as we study the systematic theology here, this is one of the markers of the Antichrist. He is a big mouth. That's what he is. He is a world-class orator. He can sway people by the way that he speaks words, not necessarily by the content. Sounds like a master politician, doesn't he? One that can say all these words and actually tell you something that's nothing more than a lie. Now, the beast kingdom is established with speed. Now, think of the way Revelation 13 presents it. How did it present it? Is a leopard, a bear, and a lion. Reversed from Daniel chapter 7. It's established with speed, with force like that of a bear, and intimidation like a lion is backed with superhuman intelligence. Why? Because the dragon is the one that gave him his power and his authority. The order in which these beasts are presented is reversed from that in Daniel 7. The reason here is to show his methods and order of importance. I believe what Daniel 7 is focusing on is taking all these beasts and getting them to the little horn. Because the little horn, uh, you can't, with all the animals, you can't say he's the big dog. That would be, <laughs> I guess that don't fit right. But he is, the little horn is the one that's in charge. And this is one of the titles of the Antichrist. When you put these labels together, dictator, revived Roman Empire, Antichrist, man of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians 2. You get all these different titles that are used to describe this same creature. And what's he doing in, in chapter uh, in, in Daniel? He's talking about the little horn. 
that's there. What are we getting, this beast out of the sea in chapter 13? The rise of the little horn is what we're getting the picture of. In the past, Alexander the Great's empire best fit this description. That's chapter 2 of the book of Daniel. Now, here is a, a fulfillment of... In fact, there's several things that go along uh, with this. Alexander lived from 356 to 323 B.C., and he uh, was met. He was coming in to, to basically uh, take over the Jews. Coming through there, he was going to take over the Jews, and, and he was met by the high priest Jadua, so the tradition goes. And Jadua showed him the prophecies out of the book of Daniel. And out of that, they said, you are this person. You are the fulfillment. And they said that at that point, he left them alone. Some think he might have got converted to Judaism at that time. But he went on down into Egypt and there proclaimed himself a god at the Oracle of Delphi. So Alexander didn't become a believer, it doesn't doesn't look like but he did it appears recognize that he was part of the the prophecy part of the prophetic word that that the jews held to now <clears throat> uh alexander the great this actually comes from walverd the revelation of jesus christ aristotle was alexander's intellectual genius alexander's speed of conquest is still the standard of comparison Interesting that he was so fast when he went over and took took places, took over uh, countries and places. It's still the standard of comparison. Now the revived Roman Empire. Okay, this is five have fallen. One is one is yet to come. That's the yet to come. Will be heralded as the ultimate in political evolution, combining the best from the ancient and modern world. That's what you can look for. Is it there? Not yet. Does it have to be prior to the rapture? No, it doesn't. How fast can things happen in the world in which we live? Really fast. You can have one major calamity, catastrophe, and you can have a ten-nation confederacy in Europe in a very short period of time. Now, how about verse 3? This is where the fun begins, and I've only got four minutes We might be a couple minutes late. It'll take that long to explain the verse. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. Now we got to fix this because the Greek doesn't say things the way they translated it. So we're going to go right to the literal Greek on this. I saw one of his heads. One is the numeral one. That's it's I C I S, and then it says ekton kephalon. Ek is out of the head of him, the heads of him, i.e. the dragon. I saw one of his heads. Now it refers to a one from out of his heads, out of his head. Excuse me refers to a person that is part of the head. Okay? One of out of his heads. What are his heads? The seven kingdoms. So one from those seven kingdoms 
Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, or revived Roman Empire. As if, notice it's an analogy based on the words used, hosts. It's an analogy, it's not a reality. As if it had been slain. Slain is a perfect passive participle of the word safato. It means to sacrifice, but the key here is it's a perfect tense in the past. It's a completed action in the past. So it says, One of his heads, as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was, he- wound was healed. Now this is where people come up with John Kennedy coming back, and uh, he's really hidden away on an island out somewhere, and who knows where. He's there with Elvis and the rest of the group. They've got quite a band, is what I understand out there. But anyway, look. I want you to just look at the words. Fatal wound. First of all, the word plague is used here. Plague is the word we get plague from. Okay, it's a very simple transition. Twenty-two times the word is used. Sixteen times in the Book of Revelation. In all the other usages in Revelation, it is always translated plague. So why would you not translate it plague here? It can mean a wound or a stripe. That plague, that can be a wound or a stripe. His does not go with head. His head wound, it doesn't go with it because... Head is a feminine word. His, of course, is masculine, which goes with the word thanatos, which is a masculine word for death. Okay? I may be losing you here, but try to follow me. It says, the word death, literally this says, the plague of his death. So this fatal wound or fatal head wound is not really communicating it. His, the plague of his death was healed. Now this is a fascinating word because it's therapeuo. We get the word therapeutics from it. What's therapeutics? You apply, you apply medicine. You apply healing. You apply something to this wound in order to, to heal it. To apply a treatment of some kind. And this treatment of some kind cured his death. I'm just giving you what literally what it says. It says, and the whole earth was amazed. Here's passive indicative. Okay, thamazo. Here's a beast coming up out of the sea, and what they've noticed is something that had happened to him earlier. He's back. And something had happened which was which had healed this issue of death. Thamazo means to be amazed or to marvel at as a result of some miraculous event occurring. It's used 43 times in the New Testament. And they followed after the beast. Now, this says simply after the beast. The word is a piso. It means to get behind, to look behind, to follow. It seems best here to supply the word came in italics that's why I put it in italics here because the whole earth was amazed but didn't follow the beast 
But the whole earth was amazed at it. But not everybody got in lockstep behind the beast. We know that because there wouldn't have been any martyrs if they did. He was killing those that did not agree with him. So, in view as a Gentile leader of an ancient kingdom, he has been, he's died by plague. A plague is, can be a stripe. But he has died and he's a counterfeit. Specifically counterfeiting the resurrection. And here are various interpretations of the wound. Some say it's Rome's fallen revival. Some say it's an attempted assassination, assassination of the beast from which he recovers. Some think that, yeah, while he was giving some speech, he got shot and killed, he died, and then he came back again. It's not what it's saying. It's saying that the plague got him earlier before he came up out of the sea. Successful assassination of the beast with God permitting the resuscitation. That's what some say. But the problems with the first view, it fails to recognize that the beast comes from hell. Kingdoms don't come from hell. Came up out of the abyss. 11 7, 17-8. 11-7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them, the two witnesses, and kill them. So, Kingdoms don't come out of the abyss. It's not the way it works. So it is an individual, not a kingdom. Men worship men as gods, not kingdoms. Even the glory that was Rome, they didn't worship Rome, they worshiped the Caesars. So when people are worshiping other people, it's going to be a, a creature of some kind, a, a man. And kingdoms, by the way, are called by the feminine, not masculine titles. So the things don't fit. The other things just don't fit. The second view doesn't literally deal with the grammar of this verse, plague of the death. The third view fails to recognize the previous life of this person. This is a place we'll spend a lot of time in chapter 17. But in 17 it says, The beast that you saw was, imperfect tense, lived sometime in the past to John is not, he's not alive in the time of John, and he's going to come up out of the abyss, chapter 11, and go to destruction. Now, that's this beast. Solution, individuals, a human ruler from the past. He's resuscitated at the rapture as a seven-year rule. He pre-existed Rome. Thus, it rules out the Roman emperors. He will be easily recognized, and he died rapidly via disease, plague of death. Those are things you can say from this passage. His reappearance, coupled with satanic power, will make him readily acceptable to the masses who will see him as a god. You know, there's a strong delusion going to come on all mankind in conjunction with this creature that takes his seat in the temple of God and proclaims himself to be a God. And if he has a claim to past existence and he's back, the masses are going to fall for it hook, line, and sinker. They're going to have to get the real, the real scoop out of the Word of God to ever figure it out properly. Anyway, the result of the healing, verse 4, That's this is... We'll leave it off, and I may review some of this next week. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day, your mercy and grace. Thank you for your word once again. 
Thank you for letting us be able to trust it because you have proven yourself over the course of the 6,000 or so years of human history that when you say it, it is going to happen. Let us take comfort in that because we are not forgotten nor forsaken during any of this. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.